Luke chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. They said to him, Where would you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Morning folks, it'd be great if you could grab a Bible and look back up to Luke chapter 22. You'd find that really helpful to have that in front of you. Treat it like an entry card, an invite to join us at a meal this morning, a meal with Jesus. Don't know about you, but One of the things that Fiona and I have most missed in these crazy COVID times we're living through isn't just meeting up with people, but eating with them. Before the pandemic, we had folks round for meals every week. And perhaps you had to endure our cooking and our conversation at one point in what now seems like the very dim and distant past. You may not have missed us, but we've certainly missed you. And what about Christmas? Well, we had a nice time just the five of us in our household over Christmas dinner but it wasn't the same without the buzz of guests pitching up to enliven our house and our home and sharing our joy you see food isn't just fuel food says friendship doesn't it especially if you invite somebody into your home there's something so human about that that it happens in every culture when we say come and eat with me we're saying I welcome you I accept you I I care about you I want to get to know you 
Latin American social activist, Cesar Chavez said this about eating together. If you really want to make a friend, go to someone's house and eat with them. Listen to this. The people who give you their food, give you their hearts. Have you experienced that? The people who give you their food, give you their hearts. Well, what if this morning God was offering us his food and in doing so, he's giving us his heart? What if the glow of sitting around the table feasting together with good friends and family at our home or, or over the Christmas dinner table is just a little picture of the kind of joy and closeness of relationship that God wants us to have with him? What if God wants to eat a meal with us as friends? Well, that's what this passage here in Luke 22 is all about this morning, a meal with God. We join Jesus in the shadow of the cross the day before he dies. And like every one of the accounts of Jesus' life, this is the point that Luke's gospel has been building up to all along. The religious leaders are circling like sharks, looking for an opportunity to kill him. And one of Jesus' own disciples, Judas, has agreed to betray him. And they're in Jerusalem, the danger zone. So it looks almost certain that Jesus is gonna die. But before we get to the action, we're invited to witness a meal that is loaded with meaning. And the first thing that we're to spot about it is this meal looks back. Five times in nine verses, Luke mentions the word Passover. Uh, he doesn't want us to miss what time it is. It is time for the Passover feast. And so he launches in in verse seven. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. That's a pretty dramatic way to describe preparing a meal, isn't it? To sacrifice a lamb. I don't think Fiona and I have ever uh, started to prepare the Sunday dinner by saying, hey, I'm just off to sacrifice the chicken. But the reason the lamb had to be sacrificed, in fact, the reason for the whole Passover menu was that this was a meal that told a story. The story of God rescuing his people from Egypt thousands of years before. So you'd get the bitter herbs, which recalled the bitter experience of God's people in Egypt, enslaved, oppressed and mistreated, all of their firstborn sons murdered by a pharaoh, the king of Egypt and the Egyptian people until God stepped in and sent his messenger Moses with the demand, let my people go. And Pharaoh kind of flip-flopped for a while. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Until finally, God said, enough is enough. You've had every chance to do the right thing, but your heart's been hard. You've been stubborn. So that all that awaits you now is judgment. A night is coming when I'm going to send my angel of death through the land and every firstborn son in the land will die. 
God as ever is so gracious. He provided a means of escape, a means of deliverance for those who were willing to take his word seriously and follow his instructions to the letter. God told his people to take a spotless, perfect lamb and sacrifice it and sprinkle the blood over the door frames of their house so that when the angel of death walked past, he would see the blood and would pass over that house and the firstborn inside would be spared. The blood of the lamb paid the price of the death of the son. And then God said, bake bread <laughs> without yeast, do it in a hurry. You haven't got time for yeast. Uh, so unleavened bread, that's what we're talking about, flat bread. And you must eat it and the lamb ready to leave with your coat and your Nikes on, ready to run because I do not want you to miss my moment of rescue. And folks, Luke is saying here in verse seven, he's saying, think all that. Think unleavened bread, think lamb, think judgment, sacrifice, rescue. And then you will get a feeling for how important this meal is, what this meal is all about. A while ago, I was in London and I saw this billboard up outside an underground station and it said, if history could be folded, where would you put the crease? It's a great question, isn't it? What do you think is the turning point of history? Well, for the Jews, the, the, the people of Israel, that's a no-brainer. They'd answer you straight away and go, the exodus from Egypt. That's where history is folded. But then, do you see, as Jesus sits down to eat with his disciples here in Luke 22, suddenly, surprisingly, he takes this meal in a totally different direction. And he says, no, it's not. The turning points of history haven't actually happened yet. For this meal, secondly, looks forward. As in verse 15, he says he has earnestly desired, he's, he's, he's looked forward to eating this Passover with his disciples before he dies. And, and that's not in the sense of having one final favorite meal with your friends uh, uh, before you go off towards the gallows. No, as in verse 16, Jesus says, he won't eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And again in verse 18, he won't drink wine until the kingdom of God comes. As if this Passover meal wasn't just something to look back to as the great deliverance, but was also a hint of, a pointer forward to an even greater one. For the rescue Passover spoke of wouldn't be fully realized until Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven and then comes back as God's reigning, glorious, heavenly king. See, Jesus wouldn't party again with his friends until, well, the time came for what the Jews called 
the messianic banquet, heaven's great feast. Don't know if you know that that's what heaven is actually gonna be like. Sometimes people speak of heaven as if it's so dull that you'd wanna be anywhere else but there. But that isn't the impression the Bible gives. No, the Bible says that it is gonna be a party full of feasting joy. And this is what Jesus is hinting at here again. And it's why he was so looking forward to eating this meal with his disciples. Not because he was looking forward to dying the next day. Uh, no, but he was looking forward to where that death would lead. For the joy set before him. For the joy of being in heaven, having saved all of those he loves, those who love him. But until then, until Jesus comes back, thirdly, this meal is for us now. There is a meal to be looked forward to when we will eat with him in eternity, but there is a meal to be eaten now. And incredibly, Jesus says that the main course is actually him. As in verse 19, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you. Poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is my body? This is my blood? What is this? Some kind of strange, sick, religious cannibalism? No. This is a shocking, visual dramatization of the cross. Jesus is to become our perfect Passover lamb. The very next day, he is gonna be sacrificed for us. His body, broken, torn apart like bread. His blood, poured out like wine, not on the doorposts, but on the cross. And all to rescue us from God's coming judgment. The innocent dies for us, the guilty. And Jesus is using this meal to teach his disciples not just how to understand his death, and to teach us that too. But he's also teaching us how to benefit from it. You see, when a person eats the flesh of an animal, they take advantage of their death. That was certainly the case in the Passover lamb. After it was killed, it became dinner. So first up, his blood shielded the people from judgment. But then its flesh sustained them as they journeyed out of Egypt. And that's the case with Jesus too. His life is given to pay for our sins, uh, but he is also given to us for our ongoing sustenance. He is our sacrifice and our fellowship meal. He is to be eaten, though we might be fed.
So how do we do that? How do we feast on Christ? Answer? By doing as he's told us to do. <laughs> you may be finding this sermon a little bit heavy this week and, and be thinking, oh, <laughs> there's been absolutely no application so far. Where's the application? Well, here it is. There's only one command in this passage. And this is it. Jesus says, he says to us, reenact this meal in remembrance of my death. And in doing so, we find an opportunity to nourish our souls. Now, we're not to, to think that we're going to do that literally, as some have misunderstood what Jesus' command means, as if the bread and the wine at, at communion somehow supernaturally actually becomes Jesus' real body and blood. No, there is nothing in all of Scripture that promises us that that will be the case. Here's how to feast on him. By doing what he's told us to do. By taking bread and breaking it, recognising that our sin is bigger than we've ever realised. Folks, sometimes you only see how serious an illness is when you see how serious the remedy is. And it can be like that with our sin. A while back, I visited a friend in hospital who looked and felt absolutely fine, yet the next day a surgeon was going to cut him open and chop out a large chunk of one of his internal organs before he would uh, be put on pills and undergo all kinds of treatments over the next year. The side effects uh, of which, well, if you were to read them, they would just make you ill <laughs> thinking about it. But to see him that day, it all seemed so unnecessary. He looked great and he was full of joy and fun. And he had absolutely no symptoms at all. And the lump that they had found in a routine scan was really very small. It made you wonder why he needed to be in hospital at all. But if the doctors thought it was worth taking the risk of this remedy, it meant that I had to reevaluate the seriousness of my friend's disease. And it can be like that for us with our sin. I mean, we may think that our sin, really, it's no big deal. My conscience might be so dull that my, my sin hardly ever really affects me. And I may have forgotten that there are always consequences for sin because I haven't really had to front up to them yet. But if the remedy for the disease of sin cost Jesus his life, well, this is a whole nother level of seriousness, isn't it? You've realised by now, I'm sure, that the lump that they found was cancerous and the doctors did a great job. And my friend endured the pain and made a full recovery. But it's not like that for us with our sin. You see, the sinner doesn't undergo the treatment. The Saviour does. He takes the full force of the effects of our sin. They are played out on him. 
And so when we come to the communion meal and we break bread and Jesus says to us, this is my body given for you, whipped for you, nailed for you, mocked for you, the darkness, the agony, the aloneness, the God-forsakenness for you. It makes us realize that our sin is actually bigger than we thought, so much bigger, so big that only the death of the Son of God is big enough to deal with it. And you can't grasp that and then dismiss sin as like a cold or a little sniffle, a bit of man flu. But then secondly, we take the cup and drink wine, remembering that God's love is also way bigger than we thought. Jesus says, this cup is poured out for you. It's the new covenant in my blood. Blood in the body means life, doesn't it? So if blood is poured out, then that is to pour out life. And that's what Jesus did for us. He gives his infinite, precious blood, the blood of God, to pay for our sin-stained souls. What kind of God is this? He is so unlike how we often characterize God to be. Ever since Adam and Eve, humanity has been suspicious of God. The first lie the serpent whispered to Eve is believed every day. God knows what you need and he is holding out on you. He is a miser. Why is it that we don't love God as we should? Why is it that we don't trust his word and do what it says and obey him? Why is it that we don't pour our lives out in worship and adoration of him? It's because we choose to believe this deception. We think that God is all about forbidding us fruit. And so we mistrust him and we close off from him and try to manage life out of our own puny resources. Folks, we must resist this lie. How? Through the body and blood of Jesus. I mean, how can you look at the cross and doubt the generosity of God? There is nothing begrudging about his sacrifice on the cross, is there? Here is his body freely given for you. Here is life poured out to the last drop for you. This God does not dispense blessings on a teaspoon. No, he pours himself out for us and to us. And at the, at the cross, unmasks the lie. Satan is the miser. We are the selfish one. And God is the giver even though it cost him everything, his own body and blood. So that we can know, we can know, we can truly, fully know that we are loved more than we could ask or imagine. 
this sermon is coming to an end. So you can relax. But I want you to join me on Zoom in about 20, 25 minutes time so that another one can start. Don't worry, it will be less verbal and more visual. There will be more physical participation. So bring bread that you can break and eat and wine so that you can pour it out and drink so that together we can seek to live out this command of Jesus to reenact this meal, to do this in remembrance of him. Here's one last thing we need to know as we come. You can eat this meal with either thanksgiving or treachery in your hearts. I mean, that was the case here, wasn't it? As Jesus says to his disciples in verse 21, behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And though the disciples were all trying to figure out who it would be, they couldn't work it out by looking around the room. And we can't work it out by looking either. The traitor ate with them all that evening. We might know which we are if we know our hearts really well. God certainly knows which we are. And he will reveal it to us if we ask him. You see, every time we take communion, whether on Zoom or as a church, is an opportunity for us to ask God to examine our hearts. This is my body given for you. Can you put your name at the end of that sentence? Given for Ken. Given for Ben. Given for... If you can, then it means that you have to own up to the disease. And if you can, it means that you need the remedy. And if you can, then it means that you can feast on Christ now. Nourish your hungry soul. And look forward to joining him in feasting joy in heaven where all of the longings of your heart can be finally and fully satisfied. So here's what I want us to do now. As we prepare our hearts to get ready to take communion, I want us to use this last song we're gonna sing to call out to God, to ask God to show us our hearts, to examine them. And then Ben is gonna come back and pray for us before he gives us details. He reminds us of the details of how to get on Zoom so we can take this communion meal together. So as we prepare ourselves for that, let's stand and sing.